Tonight continues to be a special night. How many of you know uh, Micah and some of the some of his poetry, art? This is such a such a blessing to have him here with us tonight. He comes all the way from Long Beach, California, where all Canadians dream to live and be and holiday. Uh, this is your ninth trip to Calgary, correct? He's been here almost ten times. Not a lot of Californians can say that, but uh, he's here. He's a friend of this city, many churches represented. And Micah is a, he's a poet, he's an artist, he's a rapper, he does spoken word. It's, it's incredible what, uh, what's on his life. And he's been around the world and back many times over these years. And we, ha- we have the gift and privilege to, to have him with us here tonight at Tehillah. So take a seat and... Uh, I just wanted to mention this. He's an L.A. Kings fan, and he loves the L.A. Clippers. <laughs> no. I'll let him fix that one when he comes up here. But uh, we talked about hockey and all things amazing uh, for dinner a little bit earlier. But let's give Micah a big tequila welcome as he comes to the stage. Continues in our series, Surprise the World. Never dismiss the visions of madmen. Wisdom can be gathered from anyone who sees what others cannot. Drunk men tell no tales. Poets cannot lie. Poets cannot lie because we do not divide fact from fiction. There's often more truth in our fantasy worlds and metaphors than human courts where liars swear to speak honestly in the name of laws they break, in the name of gods they disobey. The prayers of the proud will never reach heaven. But God hears the slurred words of the stumbling prophets. And all will be cursed who mock them. It is not an easy task to plead with the world. To grieve for the world. Especially since God often speaks through those most broken. The picture we paint in our minds is a far cry from the reality of heaven. When the saints go marching in, it will not be a parade of the almost perfect. God does not reserve grace for those who only need a little bit. The healthy are in no need of a doctor. The healer is for the sick. Heaven will be a freak show. Promiscuous young men will embrace the virgin priests who molested them. And their hearts will both be pure. How amazing is grace. The street corner preacher will be greeted by thousands of people she thought were not listening. Thank you for enduring the times we mocked you. Your sidewalk sermons are why we know God. How amazing is grace. Aborted children will tug the spotless robes of young women and say, Hello, mother. I'm so glad to finally meet you. The former master will see the lashed back of his no longer slave and say, you taught me the love of the Savior. The suicide bomber who prayed for forgiveness during the millisecond between pressing the detonator and standing before the throne of God 
The guilty thief hanging next to Jesus on the cross. The madman who spoke to invisible beings will stand between Michael and Gabriel with a grin as wide as an angel's wingspan and say, I knew I wasn't crazy. The missus and the mistress, the victim and the rapist, the foreign and the racist, the bullies and the geeks, all those who somewhere along the way believed, whose sins were forgiven and strength was given to love their enemies. So many we swore there is no way in hell we would see them in heaven. But they will be there. We will be there with a song on our lips and our eyes full of faith. And we'll sing how amazing is grace. Um, my name is Michael Bournet, and I do spoken word poetry. Um, and I'm going to do one more poem for y'all, but I'm really excited uh, for the opportunity to actually do something a little different for you tonight. I'm going to be preaching. I got a message to share with you. But I want to share this, this next poem, and then we're going to talk about um, these two poems and how they are, are very different in some ways. Um, but this, this next poem is titled Native Tongue. According to ShakespeareOnline.com, the English language owes a great debt to Shakespeare. He invented over 1,700 of our common words by changing nouns into verbs, changing verbs into adjectives, connecting words never before used together, adding prefixes and suffixes, and devising words wholly original. If I could, I'd spit this in whatever mother tongue was ripped from our mother's lips. But the closest I got to that is hip-hop, is black talk, is improper, non-proper, unproper, uneducated, un-educated, unassimilated, me talk, we talk, our talk, make y'all wish y'all know I'm talking about talk, make y'all ask your black friend talk, make y'all run to urbandictionary.com talk, that one thing, that something that belongs to us, that us you try to demonize, envy, copy, despise, that us you try to categorize, stereotype, try to shame our broken English you wish you could understand, but you can't never get it because we stay fly. We stay fresh. We stay changed. We stay everyday new way to say we never believed your lies. We never spoke your tongue. We've been in educated, uneducated, undash educated, unscratched, assimilated. And if you ever want to know what we talking about, maybe you need to unlearn a thing or two. Who says our vernacular ain't classical? Who says rap lyricists are any less than Shakespearean? Shakespeare, a man who turned nouns into verbs and invented 1,700 words. That's funny. When we break the rules, we're called ignorant. When we invent words, they're called slang. The way we talk is improper, non-proper, unproper, uneducated, unscratched, assimilated. We ain't never been dumb. We break English like chains. This is our native tongue. Um, so, I wanted to talk to you tonight on, on the topic of engaging culture with holy art. What makes a work of art holy or Christian or, or God-honoring? And if you notice with those two pieces, um, the first one 
if I were to ask you which one of those poems were a Christian poem, you know, many people might say the first one because I very overtly talk about theology. I talk about Jesus on the cross. I, I talk about loving your enemies. Um, but at the same time, it's very blunt. It's very straightforward. And a lot of spaces and places where Christian art or Christian music is played actually would never, would never want that poem on Christian radio in America. One of their slogans is safe for the whole family. Well, when I'm talking about priests molesting kids, right? That's, ooh, that's not PG, right? Um, so, so, but, but my, some people might say that that poem is the Christian poem because I talk about Jesus and theology. Whereas the second poem, I make no mention of God at all. The poem is about culture, culture, cultural differences. It's about stereotypes. It's about the power of language. Um, and for me, I believe that all of those things can lead to very spiritual conversations. Um, and I don't necessarily see that poem as less Christian or less honoring to God. Um, but how do we know if, as artists, as creatives, if the things that we're creating bring honor to God, if they are holy? And before we talk about holy art, engaging culture with holy art, I think we have to start with an understanding of holiness in general and then apply that understanding of holiness to the things we create. So I had a professor in college, um, his name was Dr. Michael McDuffie, and he said this. He said, God is not concerned about making you holy in an isolated way. Holiness is always unto another. Dr. McDuffie would say that. So it's commonly said in Christendom that holiness, or, or the fancier word sanctification, means to be set apart, which is true. However... The intent of holiness is not to segregate ourselves from people of the world, but to be set apart in the sense of being recognizably distinct as we are among them. So, for example, if there was 10 people in this room that had bright blue skin, you wouldn't have to put them in a corner to know that they're different. They actually could be right in here mixed in between all of us. But if they have bright, glowing blue skin, they are different as they are among us. There's no need for segregation. We still know they're Distinct, set apart, right? Um, and, and Paul, the Apostle Paul, he, he touches on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, because a lot of people, a lot of Christians have a misunderstanding of what it means to be holy. And, and Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a, such a one. So Paul says this, hey guys, I wrote to you earlier about this concept of holiness, but I think you misunderstood me. He says, because I wrote to you not to associate with the evil swindlers, greedy idolaters, and you thought I was talking about unbelievers. Well, let me bring some clarity. That's not what I meant. If your aim in life as a follower of Jesus is to not associate with unbelievers, where are you going to go grocery shopping? Where are you going to go to school? Where are you going to get your gas pumped? Where, everywhere you go. He says, I love how he says it. 
He says, not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world, for then you would need to go out of the world. If you think being holy means never rubbing shoulders or being friends or being around unbelievers, you better move to Mars. That's stupid. (laughs) Even if God wanted you to do that, that's impossible. He said, that's not what I meant. There's nowhere you can go on planet Earth where you're completely surrounded by Christians at all times. Even if you're in Christian circles and environments and schools, not everyone there is a Christian. <laughs> so, so that's an impossible aim. And yet, so often that's what we do. So often that's what we think being holy is. Christians over here, them over there, right? And, and so he says, that's, that's not it. He says, what I was talking about was within the church, those, you know, the cool Christians who like, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but, you know, like, you know, that's all. I'm not too religious. I, you know, I still do all this other stuff. But I, it, he was talking about kind of two-faced, compromising, lukewarm folks who kind of want the best of both worlds. Goes, that type of Christian is dangerous. You know, if you're hanging out with the ones who still doing being ratchet, you know what I'm saying, and then just praising, you know, acting like everything's cool, he says, don't, don't become BFF with the black backslider, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's what I'm talking about. He's like, but I wasn't talking about not associating with people who don't know God. He says, the, of course we want to do that. You know, we are, the, the light is for those who don't have it. So, so he brings some clarity there. He says, if our aim were to segregate ourselves from the unbeliever, we would have to go out of this world. Having holy character should be what allows us to engage the culture, not retreat from it. Holiness, as Dr. McDuffie said, is always unto another. Consider for a minute the external focus of most things listed as the fruit of the spirit or attributes of a holy person. Things like love, peace, kindness, gentleness, patience. You love Others, You are at peace with others. You are kind and gentle and patient towards others. Holiness is always unto another. But we have become selfishly holy. We have made holiness about ourselves and our own selfish purity and holiness. And so to illustrate this, Dr. McDuffie shared a story with me. And then I'll share a story from my own personal life. Uh, Dr. McDuffie was talking about when he was a young boy, a, a, well, a young man. He was a zealous evangelist on fire for the Lord, and he was preaching um, on the street corner. And as he was out there sharing the gospel for the lost, he says, out of the corner of his eye, walking down the street in his direction, was an incredibly attractive but also very immodestly dressed woman. And she was walking down the street. And he he sees her, and in order to preserve his own personal purity and holiness, he stops preaching, puts his head down, waits until she passes, and proceeds to preach the gospel to modestly dressed women and to men, because, of course, they're the ones who need it. That doesn't make any sense. There's another story. I was at an open mic, and... I'm very comfortable in all kind of environments around all kind of different people. When you're an artist, you kind of have to be. And so this, this open mic was kind of wild, but there's this young cat named Silas, and he was a dope poet. Like, I was just floored watching his poetry. And so I went up to him afterwards. I was like, hey, Doc, like, I really dig your work. I'd love to connect with you. And he goes, oh, for sure. So we, we, uh, we agreed that we were going to go uh, grab lunch the next week. So we meet up. Silas, he, he came with his homie Rocky, and it was me, my roommate at the time. His name was Chris. Now, me and Chris, we were Christians, and we're meeting up with Silas and Rocky, and they were, they were not. And we, we go to this pizza joint, and this restaurant is tiny. 
Um, it is just like three little tables. It was like a closet of a restaurant. And we're sitting down, the four of us, and we order food, and we're laughing, and we're having a good time. And these two dudes, they're telling stories, and they're just funny, funny dudes. And so, but they also curse like sailors. Every other word is a mother ever be, everything, all this stuff, right? So we're sitting there, and we don't mind. We're laughing. we eating pizza. we having a good time, you know, and we're doing this beautiful thing, like getting to know, connecting, because all four of us are writers and artists and poets, and we're, we're having a great time. And then a family walks in. And it's uh, two parents and two little boys. One looked maybe around seven and the other one about five. And remember, this restaurant is small. So they sit down at this table not too far from ours. And the way I'm sitting, I see them walk in the door and sit down. And all of a sudden, I get nervous. Because they don't see two Christians sitting down with two unbelievers. They see four young men laughing loud and having a good time, and they're hearing all type of profane things and lewd, crude things coming out of two of their mouths. But I was like, oh, this is mm," like they're little kids. I would never talk like this in front of little kids. I hope those parents know that I wouldn't do that. Oh, this looks really bad. Like me and Chris, we're Christians. Silas and Rocky, they're the ones. They're the ones talking like this. I wouldn't do that. And suddenly, I'm more concerned with how this appears than what actually is happening. Because what actually is happening is a beautiful God-honoring thing. But I'm so concerned about this appearance of I'm looking unholy, associating with these really bad-mouthed young men who have no respect. And I'm more concerned about the parents' perception than the beautiful gospel truth that's, that's going on at this table. And it was weird because I'm, I'm thinking about all this and I'm like, dang, in this moment, I felt both like a Pharisee and Jesus because I'm sitting here associating with the bad folks, but then judging myself for it. Right. It's like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is weird. Right. So that's that's selfish holiness. That's not what God intended. Those kids are going to hear God's words eventually. Their parents can have a conversation. They'll be fine. You know what I'm saying? But I just wanted to look so super holy. Selfish holiness. Jesus is infamous for spending time with immodest women, for hanging out with men with questionable character. The religious leaders thought if Jesus really was holy, he wouldn't do such things. But it was because he was holy that he could do such things. He could speak to immodest women walking by because his heart looked at them with compassion and not lust, with kindness and not judgment. It was because he had character and self-control that he could go into the homes of men who did not, and he could feast, and he could drink wine with them because he was holy. His holiness is what allowed him to engage, not the thing that caused him to retreat. The believer who is young and immature in the faith should indeed avoid situations which will lead them into sin. But the more like Christ you are, the brighter your light, the deeper you should charge into the darkest caves of this world. After understanding or after gaining this new understanding of holiness from my professor, Dr. McDuffie, I took a different approach to living a holy life and also to making holy art. Art is vulnerable. Human beings are most transparent when creating art. We will confess to things in songs that we dare not admit to in conversation. In poetry, we will reveal the very weaknesses that we are daily trying to conceal. Um, You can, you know, if, if you're in a conversation with a friend 
And they talk about, oh, like, I'm really sad and I'm depressed and I want to kill myself. And sometimes I think about, like, murdering my mom and my child. You'd be like, you have issues. You need to see a counselor. But then, like, Eminem can make a song about murdering his mom and his child and being depressed and hating his life. And everyone's like, oh, I so relate to that. I, I just, this is my jam. You know what I'm saying? Like, like for whatever reason, in the context of art, we expect radical vulnerability and honesty, right? So art is this space where, where you're allowed to, to be vulnerable. And there's not many places like that where people give themselves the freedom to share how they really feel without being judged. And, and, and I noticed this, I first became conscious of this when a buddy of mine invited me to an open mic in Los Angeles. That was eight years ago. I had never seen spoken word live before. I'd only watched it on YouTube. But I, I get invited to this open mic in L.A. And it was not a Christian event. And there were some very disturbing things said. But I had never been in any context where people were so emotionally and spiritually naked and honest in a room full of strangers. They would get up on the mic and to people they don't even know, they would speak of their despair and their pain and their convictions, all the things they believed in. Each artist shared very personal things. And yet the more personal it was, the more relatable it was. So many things they said, I was like, oh, like that's, that's my story too. You may have never been to an open mic like this, but maybe... Again, you've listened to the radio and you've heard a song by an artist that you've never met. And you're like, did they read my diary? Did they read my mind? Because I feel like everything, every lyric of that song I could have written. So I was in this open mic listening to poet after poet and feeling deeply connected to every person who touched the mic. I found myself among unbelievers feeling so connected and though I didn't agree with much of what they were saying about life and spirituality, and though they didn't all agree with each other, the vulnerability was beautiful, and everyone was at least listening. And there was so much anger and hopelessness and confusion and pain, and I realized that the subculture of artists and poets, which often greatly influenced the rest of culture, was a mission field primed and ready to be engaged by holy art. I thought to myself, what if Christians were this vulnerable? What if Christians addressed these issues but through the lens of the gospel? Sadly, we are too busy being selfishly holy. In our corner, making Christian art and Christian music and writing Christian poems and songs. Now let me first say, I understand that Christian artists can and should create certain works of art intended to primarily edify the Christian community and worship the Christian God. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. However, I am also convinced, given the aforementioned vulnerability present in most art, that artists should be the primary evangelists of the church. But instead, we make Christian art. And what we too often mean by Christian art is PG art, safe art, selfishly holy art, not vulnerable, not provocative, not honest to the human experience, not honest to the Christian experience, not engaging, not artistic, but Christian. Now, please hear me. I'm not encouraging Christian artists to be edgy in vain hopes of being relevant to an ungodly culture. We're not trying to prove that we're cool, too. Rather, I am calling Christian artists to create honest art. The Christian experience is not nearly as clean and shiny as our art suggests. 
There is greater pain, greater struggle, greater sin, and the greatest grace that overcomes it all. When we limit our content to happy Christian things, we are only humoring ourselves. Because in reality, our citizenship may be in heaven, but we are still present in the world. We still encounter the things we refuse to talk about. We still hear other artists talking about them. We still see other people doing them. And in truth, some of us still do them ourselves. We're not really shocked by them, but we have trained ourselves to retreat from any discussion of them in order to preserve our selfish holiness. As the French philosopher Michel de Montaigne writes, we are nothing but ceremony. Ceremony carries us away. We have taught the young ladies to blush at the mere mention of what they are not at all afraid to do. Friends, this is not holiness. This is hypocrisy. We need to create honest art about every aspect of life. Life is not safe. Life is not PG. But we write about it from a mind and a heart that has been renewed by the gospel. We engage with the world and we be just as transparent, but we do so from a Christian perspective. How does a Christian get mad at God? How does a Christian deal with the shame of a one-night stand? Because we do have one-night stands. How does a Christian experience life? And it's not that you're attempting to answer this question in every piece of art you produce, but you will answer the question because you are a Christian. See, when I sit down to write a poem, I am not always searching for the appropriate place to insert the death, burial, and resurrection. If God so stirs my heart, I have and will gladly continue to make certain works like that. I'm not trying to hide my faith, but my aim is to make honest art, not simply art filled with Christian doctrines relying on Christian cliches. Let us not shy away from anything in our human experience, trusting that whatever aspect of the gospel relevant to that particular topic will surface in our poetry because the gospel is in us. And all thoughts, irrespective of the subject, are filtered through our Christian minds. Let us write about identity crisis and joy and culture and lust and hope and loneliness and lack of faith and lies we believed and truth that set us free from them. I tell you this from experience. Honest art, holy art like this is welcomed and needed beyond the doors of the church. It was the summer after I graduated from Moody Bible Institute. Uh, that school is in Chicago. I'm originally from California, but uh, I was sticking around Chicago for a little longer uh, that summer. And so I decided to get online and look up if there were any local open mics happening during the summer months. And um, I found this bar that had a Monday night open mic. Now, the bar was called Weeds. And uh, Weeds had a a weekly open mic, and on their website, they had a kind of separate page advertising for this mic. And the open mic had the slogan, we don't give an F about anything. Okay, cool. And uh, (laughs) so then on that page, (laughs) they had a recording of, of a poem that was shared at that open mic. And the poem was titled Holes. And Summary, the poem went more or less like this. You're born out of a hole, you speak out of a hole, you piss out of a hole, you poop out of a hole, and when you die, they put you in a hole. So enjoy your whole life. 
So I'm online looking at this open mic like, hmm, I'm going to go here and read some poems about Jesus. <laughs> so I went to this open mic, and as you might expect, it was a rough crowd. The place looked disgusting. It smelled unholy. And I am two weeks out of Bible college in a bar listening to people recite some of the lewdest, angriest, saddest, most shocking, sexually erotic at times poetry I have ever heard. And I thought to myself, maybe I shouldn't be here. So many Christians I know would never step foot in here. But for whatever reason, I felt like it was exactly where I was supposed to be. And I went back every Monday of that entire summer, and I recited poetry about girls I had a crush on, about freedom, about Jesus on the cross, about being black, about all kind of things. And in all my years of being involved in Christian ministry, and evangelistic efforts. I have never had clearer opportunities to share my faith than the time I spent at Weeds. I remember one week I had just shared a poem, and it wasn't a particularly overtly Christian poem. It was just a poem, but I was there every week. People saw me. They saw me coming back. And, and so I shared this poem, and I sat down at the bar next to, the, next to this guy who was also there every week. And he turns to me. He goes, hey, brother, I really liked your poem. I said, oh, thanks, man. He goes, so where are you from? I said, oh, I'm from Long Beach, California. He goes, oh, what you doing in Chicago? I said, oh, you know, I, I went to university here, but I just, I just graduated recently. He goes, oh, well, where'd you go to university? I was like, dang. Uh, I was like, I went to Moody. <laughs> oh, Moody Bible. I was like, yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, that's a Christian school, right? I said, yeah, it's a Christian school. So, so what's Christianity all about? I was like, excuse me? <laughs> There's no, have you ever told a lie? You, like, I don't have to like, I, you're just inviting it? Let me tell you, I gave the worst gospel presentation <laughs> ever known to man. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. You know, I was like, but the thing is, look, this dude was not a Christian. And he wasn't even particularly interested in becoming a Christian. He was interested in me. I was a human. He was a human. I was a poet. He was a poet. We were sitting down. We were having a conversation. Oh, you went to Christian school. What's that all about? What's Christianity all about? I'm just having a conversation because you see me and you don't judge me as the lost, the unbeliever, the ooh, the us and them. It's no, you're sitting down and I, I, I have some type of relational connection and, and, and we just we're talking. And he just invites the gospel. And I tell you, I went back every single week to Weeds, the place where nobody gives an F about anything. And yet, I had some of the most compelling spiritual conversations I've ever had in my life. But there's obvious risk. Where do you draw the line? How much can you engage without compromising? I hope by now we understand the flaws of a hear no evil, see no evil mindset. But is there not some validity to guarding your mind and heart? Are there not certain contexts in which light can have no fellowship with darkness? 
Are not there times when our presence would not communicate love for the sinner, but rather approval of wickedness? Yes, of course, yes, absolutely, yes. So then, where do we draw the line? Well, Jesus was often accused of going too far in engagement with unbelievers. In Luke chapter 7, verses 33 through 35, we find Jesus responding to such an accusation. Our Lord says, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking wine, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So Jesus says, look, he's, getting, he's catching heat. He's getting criticism by other religious leaders. And he says, look, I can't win with y'all because John the Baptist came and he was nothing like me. Jesus liked to turn up. He'd go to a party, turn water into wine. You know what I'm saying? Like Jesus was like feasting and eating. And John was on the more conservative side of things. He was kind of weird. He was like eating bugs in the wilderness. And he didn't, he didn't drink wine like John wouldn't. He didn't touch the stuff, right? So he says, look, John the Baptist didn't drink wine. And you criticize him. I do drink wine. And you say I'm an alcoholic. And I hang out with alcoholics and sinful people. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children, Jesus says. What does that mean? It has become popular among Christians to say that our faith is not merely a set of rules. Yet still, in practice, many of us wish it was and act of it as if it is. Why do we do this? Because it's easier to know when you're doing it right. When you're being holy. John the Baptist abstained from wine. Jesus did not. Who was right? What should we do? Do this and you are unholy. Do that and you are holy. Where is the line, we ask, that we might stand on the proper side? But Jesus refuses to draw that line. He says, look, John the Baptist didn't. I did you hating on both of us. Wisdom is justified by her children. How do we know what is wise? How do we know what is and isn't appropriate for the Christian? In what ways can we engage? How far is too far? Jesus says, we know if we are living a holy life and being wise by observing what our abstinence or our engagement is giving birth to. Wisdom is justified by her children. What are the children of your decisions? Is your abstinence communicating a moral and principled heart or a judgmental heart towards the wicked? Is your engagement leading you into compromise and sin or is it giving you opportunities to share the gospel with the lost? Are unbelievers being reached with the truth or are you being negatively influenced by the world? Such considerations require far more work than simply standing on either side of a given line. It requires intentionality in action and thoughtful reflection upon what those actions give birth to. I cannot say definitively that hanging out at weeds would be a wise decision for every Christian. But I look at the children of that decision in my life and I see that people who never would have stepped foot in a church heard the gospel. 
And I, though very uncomfortable at times, was never once tempted to become as they were, but rather my heart was broken, broken for the lamenting poets in that barn. I want to give a final illustration to kind of help you understand what I'm trying to get at. And I have a good friend, a dear friend of mine. I went on tour with his brother a couple times. And he's a Christian artist, but he was raised in a very conservative church, and his father was the pastor. So uh, they, were, they were on lockdown. And you know, his father always said, you know, the Bible says, if a man can't keep control of his own household, he's not fit to be a leader in the church. So y'all, as my children, better not mess up. Right? That was the pressure. He grew up with that pressure, thinking, if I mess up, dad might lose his job, and everything will be bad. He grew up thinking that. I have to be perfect. And so he was not perfect, obviously. And when he was um, in a senior in high school, he started sleeping with his girlfriend, and she got pregnant. Meanwhile, he, he's still like doing music at his dad's church, playing drums and leading worship. And of course, he's terrified. He's absolutely terrified. So he doesn't tell anyone, and him and his girlfriend decide to go get an abortion. And he never told anyone in his family what happened. Fast forward 10 years, his brother, his older brother, has a daughter, so his niece. And his niece is 10 years old, and he realizes that had he not him and his girlfriend not had an abortion, his own child might have been around the same age. Maybe his daughter would be 10 years old. And his niece is the light of the family. Everyone loves her. And his brother was also not married when, uh, when he had his niece. And my buddy just breaks, and he, he, he realizes he has been hiding this secret for a decade, and he needs to talk about it. He needs to be freed from this. He's a poet. He's a songwriter. So what does he do? He wrote a song, but he wrote an honest song. He didn't write a song for Christian radio. He wrote a song that, in my estimation, is the most gospel-centric song I personally have ever heard, but it would never be played on any Christian radio, and most churches would be very offended if he played it. You want to know why? Because the opening line of the song says, please excuse the way I must express the way I feel inside. I'm so tired of Now this is the thing. My personal conviction on profanity, I'm pretty old school. I can communicate the range of human emotion without using profanity. I think it has a whole lot of potential for bad and very little potential for good. 98% of the time, I just think it's lazy. People talk about, oh, this burger's effing delicious. That's stupid. I think it is a very easy way to, to be distinct and holy among your friends. People notice what you say and what you don't say, right? So for me, you know, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I try to have beauty and life becoming, not profane things out of my mouth. However, there are certain realities in this world that are profane. And when he went to write that song, he didn't want to say, I'm tired of messing up. Because if I'm on stage and I forget a lyric in a poem, I messed up. If I get my girlfriend pregnant, hide it, have an abortion, lie about it for 10 years, that word means something. 
He was intentionally looking for the lewdest, crudest, most profane word in the English language to describe what he did and how he felt. Because you know what? You get to the, to the bridge of that song and he says, I'm a murderer. I'm a thief. I'm that liar who is way beyond belief. I'm a cheater and I'm a whore. But if you take me as I am, I am all of yours. Grace, will you remember? Will you remember? Grace, will you remember? Grace, will you remember me? See, people are not walking around feeling like, oh, they made a few mistakes and they messed up and maybe God will love them. People are walking around feeling like they and God doesn't like them. If God exists, I pray he doesn't because if he does, I'm not getting into heaven. And my buddy comes along and says, no, for all of you feeling like F-ups, the grace of God is big enough for you. The grace of God is big enough for those who effed up in life. And saying, I'm so tired of messing up, it just doesn't, it just doesn't have the same impact. It just doesn't. And I don't even like cussing. <laughs> right? And so if we are so Christian cultured in our thinking that we're so offended by the use of a word in the first line that we never get to the beautiful gospel bridge, oh, we're just stupid. <laughs> That's just dumb. That's not what it means to be holy. You know, and I'm not saying that everyone has to go around and start using profanity in their art. But I'm saying, understand that your holiness is unto another. It's not just so people think you're perfect. Right. And although the title of this lecture is engaging culture with holy art, I understand not everyone is an artist, but everyone is creative. And everyone has some passion or some hobby or some interest or some personality type that they share with unbelievers in different spheres. And so the more accurate aim is to engage culture with holiness, remembering that holiness is always unto another. And having holy character should be what allows you to engage the culture, not retreat from it. Thank you.